0: Well, thank you worship team and uh, worship choir. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4 verses 6 to 21 this morning, page 925 if you're using our Bibles. For the last couple of weeks in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, part of chapter 4, I think we've been motivated to look ahead in life. And I mean Really looking ahead in life. We talked about 30 billion years from now, we're just getting started on uh, eternity. And so often we picture our life from birth to death when, as believers, if we put our faith in Christ, we know we live forever. And in fact, we've seen in chapter three how that Jesus plans to reward us in some special sense. There is some kind of well done that uh, he wants to give us if we are serving Him faithfully with eternity in mind. Um, I don't know if, as, as you've been studying along with us, if maybe God by His Spirit has spoken to you about some maybe tangible step of, of commitment or service, uh, something you, you're, going, you're going to do you wouldn't have done for the sake of Christ, uh, some, some, someone you're reaching out to, someone you're going to care for. If so, that's great, because that, that's what the Spirit of God does when we are, are in His Word. So if you do, if you, if you follow through with something God has prompted in your heart, will the bands begin to play to celebrate your great act of service and commitment? I guess I've loaded that with sarcasm to answer my own question. Because what Paul does in this section is shows us the realities of ministry And that is that as we serve Christ, it's hard. And all kinds of things can go wrong. One of the main things that went wrong for him, it's pretty obvious as we read this passage, is he faced a lot of criticism. And by the way, almost always, more commitment means more criticism. Um, The mark of his critics, we'll see quickly, is arrogance, or pride. So as we read verses 6 and 7, look for those terms, pride, or boast, or better, or superior. He says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different, or better or superior, from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Uh, He's describing for them, telling them, you are perceiving ministry to be a place where you can exalt yourself. And he brings up yet one more time this kind of competition that they envisioned, at least the critics that were trying to, I think, take over the church in Corinth, they envisioned there to be some kind of a a competition between Paul and Peter and Apollos, and uh, so they were taking sides, he says, this whole thing He says, "reveals that what you think ministry is is a place of prestige or status. Who's on top? The kind of the corporate view of church that you're taking in, and the reason you are rallying around one versus another is because somehow I think he's he's saying you you want to hitchhike on." Who you think is the greatest and ally yourself with that person and then you have more status in the church you have prestige you you're a buddy with the right guy um, so verse 7 says what makes you different so while on one hand he says verse 6 this saying what is written is a way of alluding to Scripture. He says, your view of leadership, your view of the church is unbiblical, unscriptural. It's not what's written. So he says, what makes you, verse 7, different? And the word means better than or, or different in a superior way. What makes you better than others? The temptation in any organization is that somebody wants to stand out, somebody wants to be on top, someone wants to be uh, exalted and honored. It's just, it's just normal to, to want to be the rock star or whatever. He says in a church, that is lethal spiritually because we exist to glorify God. And how can we glorify God when in some undermining way we are trying to glorify ourselves? You simply can't do it. You can't be glorifying your God, God and yourself yourself at the same time what makes you better than others so as christians we have to make sure that we keep our pride in check especially in church relationships And we might think on one hand well the, uh, pride is the problem of those who are are uh, in charge or trying to be or, or up front or something like that no actually pride is is every man every woman's temptation it can be as as subtle as as uh, you're in a bible study and one person's comments get praise, and yours gets a yawn. Or you're planning an event uh, for the church, you're on a committee or a team, and, and uh, somebody else's idea always wins out, and yours are ignored. Pride hurt. Our pride is hurt, which tells us we have pride. So, what makes you think you're better than others? And then he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Obviously, he's implying everything comes from God. So what, did you, what do you have that you do not receive? I think he's alluding to the fact of, of the reality of spiritual gifts because in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk about a great big problem that's come up with spiritual gifts. We receive spiritual gifts, right? So I think he's kind of laying the groundwork for when he's going to talk about that. The guy says, So when you think about your spiritual gift, he says, how could you take pride in that because you didn't achieve your spiritual gift. You were given your spiritual gift. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, the issue will be how the gift of tongues uh, have become an opportunity for some to to show off what they can do. Gifts are gifts. Don't take credit for them. I remember years ago uh, in a pastor magazine seeing a church, a cartoon of a guy in church who uh, was going to sing the solo. So he's He's standing up there with the mic, and, and it's, like, it's like the caption read, he accidentally was honest with what he was thinking. He says, I just want to sing this song to worship our Lord, and it really showcases my amazing voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we can so easily take credit for something God gave. Ego battles are everywhere. You have it at your job, I'm sure. Uh, who tells who what to do? Who has seniority? Who's the smartest uh, in the room kind of thing. Egos have to stop at the door when you come into a church family. How can you boast? How do you dare boast about serving Christ or serving Christ better than somebody else? God allowed you to serve or teach or sing or whatever it is you might do. So don't destroy the whole concept of what service is. And, and Paul actually in verse 8 then just gets to a point of kind of a biting irony. Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. A little bit of holy sarcasm there, I think, too. You're acting like you own the church. That's the idea of, of rich or wealth. You're acting like you're the king of the church. And he said, you're doing that without us. It was, it was personally directed at Paul. You see, if there were some that were saying, "Yea, Apollos, that meant there were some who were anti-Paul. And he's very much aware of that. That without us. We don't need you, Paul. After all, you left us, and it's been about a year, and you're, you're over there in Ephesus. You're gone. We're, we're taking over here. We're in charge. I, I just kind of picture when Paul is, Paul's letter arrives at the church in Corinth. You know, I don't know, some meeting like this, and there's an elder reading the letter the first time, and I wonder if the room gets really quiet when he gets to this part. Acting like kings, acting like you're rich, because i'll bet you that the people in the church kind of knew who was the target of these statements did they kind of quietly glance over to see how they were taking it everyone knew the shoe fit certain people maybe except for the people it fit because sometimes when you're afflicted with pride you don't know it there's maybe you've heard maybe the saying pride Pride is the disease that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. So beware if you think you're so humble, basically. How I wish you'd really become kings so that we could be kings with you. You're, you're ruining what it means to serve Jesus Christ. So, and if Paul is being very direct, realize he had every right to do so. He's an apostle sent by Jesus to call them out. So you have this perception that ministry is a place, a platform, a status, ego boost. Instead, here's what ministry is really like. Paul says, starting in verse 9, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena, we have become a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to men. He said, we are put in a place of humiliation, serving Christ. Far from being king in the church, serving Jesus is more like being someone condemned to die. It's, uh, it's not quite certain which of, a, of, of two possibilities this metaphor or illustration is, um, What kind of a spectacle, what kind of event is pictured here? One idea is, and actually some Bible translations reflect more one idea than the other. The key is this little word, end or last, that you have in verse 9. End or last of what? The first scene that's a possibility is that it's a gladiator scene. So the contrast is that, you know, the king or, or, or important people, they sit in the stadium box seats watching the spectacle... Paul says in that picture he'd be saying, I'm, I'm the guy being killed out there in the arena. That's one possibility. The other, uh, more reflected in the New International Version, is that, in, in other words, like I'm, I'm the last person to die. The other way you can take the word end is the NIV takes it as the end of a procession, which I think actually makes a lot of sense. When a, when a general came back from a, from a battle or a war uh, victorious, he would lead a parade. He'd lead a procession into the city. And the general who's victorious is leading it. They've got his troops behind him. And at the very end of the parade, you'd have the condemned captives and probably the loot that they had captured. Paul says, I'm at the end of that procession. Everybody in church is like jockeying to be the front guy. It says "No ministry is more like being the condemned person, the, sac- the one who's going to pay the ultimate price at the, at the end." And so it's kind of a jolting illustration of death. So we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we thinking of serving Christ as being a place we can excel and be noticed and congratulated, or as a place of painful sacrifice? It's a, it's a reality check. It's a hard truth. Because I know I love to drive home from services on Sunday morning, feeling like, "Wow, that was really great. Everything worked well. A few people said something nice." I'd like to go home from a ministry meeting and, and, and to know that you know we accomplished something, or we're planning to accomplish something really great, and everybody's together, everybody's on board. But you know what? Sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes they're like. Conflict we should do it this way. No, we should do it this way and we should handle this this way and and something We're looking at something and it didn't work Really in in scope of Paul that's probably minor stuff but You get bad news and failure and criticism and criticism is painful whether it's true or not true it's painful so If in the last couple of weeks and passages You've been motivated to live for God's well done. Just realize it'll be hard. Uh, More commitment actually means more cost. Any world-class athlete will tell you that it's not about breaking the tape and getting the medal. It's about hours and hours and weeks and months and years of painful training. So. What will the cost be? There are simple costs, obvious ones, hours of time that it seems you can't afford. It can be dollars. It can be uh, willingness to kind of put yourself out there, and, and, and people can criticize. Patience with people, uh, giving up your ideas for somebody else. For Paul, it was like humiliation, verse 10. Not only has he pictured himself, you know, humiliated in the arena to die, he says, now, it's like applying the metaphor, verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. Again, there's this irony. Um, You're claiming to be so smart, so strong, so important. Let me tell you something, he says, what we apostles are experiencing is very much the opposite so so he's been criticized a lot but if you look back to chapter 4 verse 3 our study last week we saw that Paul had learned how to handle criticism there was a mental spiritual process for handling criticism verse 3 I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court indeed I do not even judge myself my conscience is clear but that doesn't make me innocent it is the Lord who judges me. So he says, he goes through this this spiritual uh, practice of saying that, okay, if I'm receiving criticism, then I need to evaluate, am I, am I pleasing Christ? Am I pleasing Christ? Do I have an honest appraisal of that? Then I, then I don't have to worry what y'all think. Verses 11, 12, and 13, he goes on to say, be, besides these emotional, spiritual kinds of things, he says, Sometimes ministry is just plain hard for him, especially physically. Physically, verse 11. To this hour we go hungry and thirsty. This is literal. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Wow. Serving Jesus is so fun, right, Paul? Why was this so fun? Why was this so rugged for him? Picture Paul's life the last decade or so before this. Read the book of Acts and try to put the pieces together, but... Where has he literally been? This is, this is a map of the second journey, but uh, the first journey was a little bit shorter than this one. So, but, but actually, if you, if you think of the mileage, it had been, the first journey was about a 1,000-mile round trip. Second journey was a 1,000 was miles of walking just to get to Corinth. Then another 1,000 miles of, of, of ship time. Danger, and you'll talk about danger in shipwrecks. And to go back, and then and then he did it all over again the third time. And Paul is actually writing during the third missionary journey, so he's put on a few miles walking, and it's been a it's been a difficult, painful uh, process. On one hand, I suppose that Paul walking those roads in, throughout the Roman Empire was grateful that there were roads in the empire, because you go back three hundred and some BC. When Alexander the Great had swept through and conquered all of these little small kingdoms and was uniting them under himself, which would become the Roman Empire, uh, one thing that Alexander the Great had done that I really believe was in the providence of God was he had his troops, his people, uh, build roads connecting all those places. So what? So that Paul could get from one place to another. There were roads. You didn't have to climb over rocks to get from one of these places to the next. And the other thing that Alexander the Great had done is that he had said, we're all going to speak the same language for trade. And he made everybody speak and learn Greek, and that would be the the trade language. So a couple of centuries of that had happened. Why? So that Paul, and I believe in God's providence, so that Paul, as he would travel around, he could preach the gospel in a single language Greek, and our New Testament would be written in Greek. but so, so on one hand, I'm sure that Paul was aware, you know, this is really an amazing time in technology that I have roads, and we have a single language that I can go around, I can take the gospel freely. He, he was grateful while being frustrated. Can you do both of those at the same time? And, and if you're honest, you say, yeah, that's my life, right? Gratitude, frustration, gratitude, Frustration. It's like two train tracks and they, you exist with both of them, gratitude and frustration. And somehow it's like, indeed God knows when he needs to pave the road to make it easier and what he needs to leave undone so that we need him. And he has a way of putting that perfectly together. Besides that, he said we had to work hard with our hands. Well, the Corinthians knew that was true when he came to their city because uh, Paul makes a point of, 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 of talking about it. He, in the book of Acts, it's recorded that when Paul came to Corinth, it was with this other couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and uh, they worked during the day making tents, doing leather repair, so that Paul and I assume Aquila and Priscilla would, would do ministry in, in the, the rest of the time. But then later Silas and Timothy came and brought some financial support so Paul could go more full-time in ministry. Uh, this past week, Pastor Nate and I spent the first couple days uh, up at Fort Wilderness at a pastor's retreat and enjoyed meeting different uh, pastors. And I enjoyed a conversation with one particular pastor. I, I started the conversation because I saw he had a, uh, a farmer cap on with a, a tractor company, Case IH. So started talking with him. And he's a pastor. He's a bivocational pastor. He farms and he pastors a small church in southern Wisconsin. And I really respect that. Uh, he's, got, he's got pressures, I know, on his life that, that I don't have. Uh, probably more like the pressures you have if you're, do, if you're invested in ministry. You're working full time and, and still doing ministry. But uh, Paul did that. Paul said, I, I would work and do anything possible to get the gospel out. And then he says there's the, the emotional toll. I get cursed but I need to return a blessing. I get persecuted i need to endure it i get slandered and i'm still supposed to talk nice that's hard that's hard it's kind of the no good deed goes unpunished kind of a thing you're trying to serve and and then your attitude gets pushed and stretched it's tough he says mistreatment has become the norm in my ministry paul said and and really to to some real extreme just going back through Acts 18 when he first came to corinth Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, things got really worse, and God came along and said, I want to make you a promise. You're going to survive this. One night the Lord, that's Jesus, spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you. It must have been a real threat, because I have many people in this city. So God does protect and keep him alive so that he can keep serving but the but the persecution didn't stop it didn't become all peaceful while Galilee while Galio was proconsul of Achaia the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment and it's interesting Paul gets out of that and gets out of town but one of the others his partner Sosthenes then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, a synagogue ruler, someone who evidently had come to faith, and beat him in front of the proconsul. That's ministry in the first century. It was tough. When you see this history, you can kind of see why, why Paul, writing back to the town, to the church, where pride and division has become the popular topics, he says, you guys, Seriously? You're going to see the church as a place to, you know, control and push your views, your preferences? I don't think so. Up to the moment, very end of verse 13, up to this moment, we are the scum and the refuse. Uh, these are not pretty words. Uh, you may have the word filth, dregs, off-scouring. The first word is a, is a, is a, is a liquid form of scum. It's, it's the water you put down the drain after the dishes, basically. And the first word is the stuff you scraped off before you did the dishes. So if, if, if you can picture yourself cleaning the grill or doing dishes or trying to clean out the oven after the sticky stuff has boiled over and put that in the trash, Paul says, that's what ministry is really like. That's what it feels like when you're actually serving Christ. Don't expect the bands to play. This issue of suffering becomes such an issue in Corinth, that even in the second letter, not that much later, Paul says, can I remind you again how tough this is? (laughs) And there's this long list of the price he paid. We won't even read this all. Just let me read the underlined words. Prison, exposed to death, 40 lashes, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, danger in the open sea, rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles, danger in the city, country, sea, false believers, labored and toiled, gone without sleep, hunger and thirst, without food, and then he says to top it all off. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Like you, Corinth. It's almost like he's saying, you know the worst part? The hardest part is caring about where everybody's at spiritually. He says, that's taking a toll on me every day. You know, Paul would be a terrible recruiter for a Bible college or seminary, wouldn't he? <laughs> or, or even if, you know, we did a ministry fair in the foyer or something, you know, and all the, everybody puts up their, their, their little table, the ministries, come join us, it's fun. And there's Paul, scum of the earth club. Get away, Paul, you're discouraging people. And you know, if, if, if this was the end of the passage... Uh, It would be discouraging, and maybe nobody would sign up for anything again. But um, in verse 14, he softens his tone because he knows not everybody is like his critics. Not everybody is divisive. Not everybody is pushy, trying to be somebody, filled with pride. He says, it's like he says, I know there are sincere, innocent people in the church family who are not yet drawn into this arrogant, divisive argument thing that's going on. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And for this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and in every church. So he turns from this emphasis on the price of ministry. He says, you got to get that. But suddenly now you see in this softer tone, the privilege of ministry. He says, it is my privilege to be your spiritual dad. I warn you as dear children. It's like he's almost changed personalities here. Because I think he's his audience, he's shifted from those naysayers at the edges of the room to, to some people who's, who have captured his heart. This is gentle Paul. Telling them of the privilege of serving them. He said, even, if, even if you had 10,000 guardians, you only have one father. The, the guardian thing, first of all, it's hyperbole exaggeration, but he says, I don't care how many people have poured into you, Paul, Apollos, Peter, everybody, that's great. He says, I've had the privilege of leading you to faith in Christ as a dad. He says, and that's, that's something precious. That privilege is amazing to me. So instead of just emphasizing how hard it is, he says, I'm thinking about, you know, names and faces, relationships, people that I know are hearing this letter read. And he says, it just warms my heart. I remember the last hug or whatever. He said, I, I, I just, these are real people who are important to me. So, you know, if and when your, your life, even as a Christian, sometimes becomes, feels kind of empty or without value or meaning how do you reset that first of all yeah we think eternal but if you think eternal that means you're thinking people because people do last forever and the emptiness that we can sometimes feel is about the problems here and Paul says I am able to look past that and go but I've been serving people spiritually in ways that'll have an impact forever. And then it's all worth it. Then it makes sense. I've been, I've been, I've been teaching the gospel. People's eternal address is changing. I've been, I've been challenging them in their spiritual growth and sanctification to walk with Christ, and that'll make a difference for them. In, in Christ's well done to them. He says, this, this all matters. If you knew 20 years ago what price a certain stock would be, Today, you'd have sold like everything to buy it. Clean out the garage, whatever. Got to get some money together. This is going to be worth that. You know, spiritually, we actually know that already. People last forever. We know what's going to have value 30 billion years from now. So he says, I become your father, and I urge you to imitate me. That's a daring statement when you think about it. Uh, Paul's the one who also in this same letter chapter 11 verse 1 says follow me as I follow Christ So there's a little bit of a qualifier there. It says as Paul knows he's not sinless to the extent I'm following Christ Then follow me. So it, it puts the pressure on us to a right kind of pressure to be very intentional about our spiritual direction because we have a sense of others whom we love are watching us live, and whoever that might be for you, do you really want them to be like you? Do you want them to have the the priorities that you have, that, that you invest in these things? Do you want them, whether them as friends, children, grandchildren, whoever, do you want them to have your attitudes? to be as negative or positive? Do you, do you want them to have the kind of relationships you have? Do you want, do you want your kids to have, to have the same kind of relationship with their spouse as, as you have with yours? You know, these kind, of, these kind of questions are like arresting our attention about the, the, the magnitude of, of how we live when you say, imitate me. He says, I want you to imitate me, but I can't come right now, so I'm gonna send you Timothy. For this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere. So he says, There is somebody who is living like me. He's my, he's my, he's my partner. My, my son, not literally, but he was a son in the faith. He came to faith when Paul came to his town. If Jesus had one disciple who was closest, John, then I would say Timothy was was Paul's uh, close partner. He'd been a child in the faith. He became a partner in ministry. He says, Corinthians, I care so much about you. I'm going to send you my very best representative. And Timothy had spent some time with Paul where he's actually writing this letter. He doesn't deliver the letter, it seems, but because... 1 Corinthians 16 tells us he has to go up to Macedonia first, but he's going to get to you in Corinth before I can, but eventually I'm coming too. But he's going to remind you of my life. He he can verify if I practice what I preach. Um, I kind of wonder if Paul wrote 1 Corinthians so forcefully because he knew Timothy was coming, and he wanted to kind of put the hard stuff on paper before Timothy got there. Just a sanctified guest, hopefully, but he he didn't want his younger partner to show up and go, oh my goodness, this place is a mess. Where do I start? Paul said, I'm just going to write it all out so that there's a head start on on all this for Timothy when he gets there. And then, verses 18 to 21, uh, Paul kind of concludes this section by returning to a warning for his critics. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. And here's the principle: For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a you may have the word "whip or rod or staff? Shall I come with you, you know with discipline, or in love and with a gentle spirit? You can't say it much stronger than that. That Paul says, I'm going to expose the critics. I'm going to expose the, the arrogance. And there's a reason. It's because ministry cannot be marked by boisterous talk, but by is God actually at work tra- changing lives? You could almost say, Paul writing this does not sound like your typical pastor. And I thought, you know, he never claimed to be a pastor, he claimed to be an apostle. Timothy was a pastor. Paul started almost every letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that carried with it a weight of authority, that is, God speaks to me directly, so I can speak to you with what God is saying. And so this is what the Corinthians needed to hear from the apostle Paul. First of all, A, you are arrogant, you have a spiritual sin problem, it's pride, and B, you, you have no sense of accountability, but I'm coming. And we're going ha- to have, have some hard talks. In fact, there'll be, if necessary, some hard actions. The rod. Probably referring like to a shepherd to tell the sheep, nope, not there. Uh, of course, he's not going to physically do this. It's a metaphor for church discipline, which, interesting, is the very next passage. There's a case where there will be church discipline. But he says, at the very end, he says, what do you prefer? You want the rod or the, the gentle spirit? He says, I'm both. And you can tell that Paul would really long to come with the, the love and the gentle spirit. That's his real heart. He loves these people. It, 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 he's the good dad. If you, if you had a, had a, a sincere uh, good father trying to help you grow up, You know that there were times when they were truly blunt and uh, emotionally charged out of love because they saw that you either had done something foolish or were about to do something really foolish that could ruin your life. That's tough love. Paul says, I'm willing to do that. And here's the principle. Here's why, because the kingdom of God is not talk but power. Paul has talked, He's, he's writing words, right? But he's, he's writing words that points to the power of the gospel. Chapter 1, I think, verse 21. It has the power to save. It changes where you go forever after you die. So we need to focus on the gospel because it actually transforms you from death to life. And We need to talk about the hard things that will absolutely change the, the tra- trajectory of your life to, to walk with and please Christ and get eternal rewards or else to show up with wood, hay, and straw. He says, this is important. If God's power is not at work, when we worship together and gather around God's Word here, we should just cancel. If there's no power in the Word of God, there's no point. When you teach your kids or maybe someone else's kids in the lower level, or you meet with somebody to spiritually encourage them, if there's no power, if the Spirit isn't at work, don't go through the motions. It doesn't matter. It says it's not just talk. The Corinthian critics committee didn't know that. They were just fleshly, chapter 3, 1 to 3. They, just, they, they were just trying to posture for a position. And they would someday meet Christ, chapter 3, 12 and 13. They would someday meet Christ with wood, hay and straw. They would go when the fire of God's evaluation swept over it. So this is a sobering reminder that God wants to use us. It'll cost us. But He wants to invest His power in what we do to actually accomplish eternal benefits, that someone is different because of you. They came to faith in Christ. they made one step of, of, of obedience. You were encouraged them at the right time. That he wants to use you so that his power can work through your relationship, conversation, ministry, teaching, whatever your role might be. And that's that, that spiritual gift, that effort, that skill, that hours of service is going to have an actual impact that will matter forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would... Uh, not just celebrate your sacrifice and be unwilling to sacrifice. Help us to realize the cost of uh, serving uh, in simple or large ways, small decisions, or maybe sometimes life-changing decisions. Thank you for so many who have uh, done uh, so much through the years in investing in ministries here around the world that we can see the evidence that your power is at work through your word, by your spirit, among us. And we pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that we aren't doing it, we aren't achieving it, and that we might not even be thanked or appreciated, but that we are serving you for your well done. In Jesus' name, amen.